Hebrews chapter 6, chapter 5, rather, <clears throat> verse 9, through chapter 6, verse 3. <clears throat> Hebrews 5, verse 9. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him, called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have many things to say and hard to be uttered, seeing our dull of hearing. For when for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have needed one teach you again which be the first principles of the oracles of God, and are become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But strong meat belongeth to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Therefore, leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms and of laying on of hands and of resurrection of the dead and of eternal judgment. And this will we do, if God permit. May his blessing be on his word as we've read it. May we now bow. I don't know very well this wonderful gentleman you introduced. I'm but a dying man, preaching to dying men. Let's pray. Lord, we pray you would revive us by your spirit this day and afflict our souls so that we might say with all genuineness and sincerity that we have not served you as we ought. And from that confession, to rise up strengthened by your grace, to do those things which are pleasing to you, to do those things which honor your word, and advance the kingdom of our only Savior and Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name that we pray and worship you this night. Amen. I've been thinking this afternoon about what I preached to you this morning. And it may come something of a, um, a shock. It may be somewhat distressing, somewhat surprising, and it certainly is distressing to me. But I think, in all honesty, I must confess the futility of this morning's message. I think, in a very real way, the idea of advocating scriptural inerrancy and the idea of advocating the Reformed slogan of sola scriptura in a sense, makes absolutely no difference at all. Makes absolutely no difference at all if, in fact, we are allowing dust to accumulate upon our inerrant Bibles. If the Bible is being seen 
if you will, somewhat like it's found in the now uh, modern wrappings in our bookstore with the plastic shrink wrap around it so that no moisture and no dust, no infestation of insects, no anything can get into it and destroy the absolute beauty, purity, and cleanliness of that book. And if we, you see, are letting the Bible become just that sort of pure book, one which is unhandled and untouched and unexperienced, then everything I said this morning is for nothing. And no line of reasoning and rationalization and persuasion will change my opinion on that, that you may completely ignore what has been said if we are not applying ourselves to the understanding and the application of an inerrant Bible, if we are not preaching the deep truths of Scripture, if we are not setting forth and proclaiming the whole counsel of God, if we are not using the Bible in order to answer the challenges of our age, if we are not using the Bible to make the tough ethical decisions that we must as Christians with it, if we are not constantly letting the Bible reform us and therefore reform our churches and thereby reform our world, then you may just put it away and forget this reform slogan of sola scriptura. I want you to imagine for just a moment a, um, a revision of what has come to be called the uh, Pepsi Challenge. I, I imagine you have commercials uh, about the Pepsi Challenge up here, even as we do in Southern California. Uh, the idea being that... Um, a glass of um, another brand of cola, Coca-Cola, is available along with a, a glass of Pepsi-Cola, and the uh, person who's going to sample these things doesn't know which is which. And uh, so the person samples both, and uh, the results are then announced. Uh, the vast majority of those who have been tested prefer Pepsi to Coca-Cola. And I want to alter that, you see, just for a moment. I want you to stop and think about uh, a test a taste test uh, taking place where on the one plate you have a porterhouse steak laid out before the person, and on the other plate you have pablum, perhaps we should say in a bowl, pablum mixed up. And so the person comes along and tastes the steak, the porterhouse, uh, comes along and tastes the baby food, the pablum, and then the announcement is made. Lo and behold, in the Christian church at the end of the 20th century, it did turn out that more Christians preferred pablum to porterhouse. And I say, if that ever should become true, and if it should continue to become true, the winds of 1517 and the Reformation have not blown through our church at all. There is going to be no reform of our church and no reform of our culture until friends, we first reform ourselves, and especially regarding our attitudes toward the Word of God and our practices regarding the Word of God. We must reform ourselves pertaining to the study of Scripture and the use of Scripture and the handling of the Bible as the standard for all matters. And if we don't, although I'm not a prophet nor the son of a prophet, I can say to you on the absolute authority of God's Word that your church will, in fact, die. Don't you ever get it into your head that God somehow owes existence to this congregation, that somehow it is impossible for that to happen here. The history of the church is the history of those who have become self-complacent and have lauded their own theological orthodoxy only to find out that the work of God began to take place elsewhere 
because the church was lurking in the shades of mediocrity, dying by default for not utilizing its privileged revelation in Scripture to its fullest and finest degree. I'm definitely scared today that the church might very well, as we now know it in our own country, expire under the false security of having a once orthodox and once vigorous past. In the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, the author of the book is arguing in any number of ways about the superiority of the new covenant, the superiority of the new mediator, Jesus Christ, to all that which the Old Testament had to offer. And as part of his argument, he starts to speak of the superiority of the priesthood of Jesus Christ to the superiority of that priesthood once known under the Old Testament revelation. He says that the Old Testament knew the priesthood of Aaron, an Aaronic priesthood. But Jesus Christ has come after the order of Melchizedek, another kind of priest altogether. And as he's arguing along in verse 10 of the chapter that we've opened up already tonight, he says that Christ was called of God and high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And then at verse 11 comes a sharp break in his argument. And he does something which no preacher who wants to get ahead in this world, no preacher who wants to be a popular conference speaker, no preacher who wishes to climb the political ladder of his denomination should ever do. And he makes a digression from objective, very matter-of-fact, out there, pure and simple theological concerns to personal matters. He gets extremely personal with his readers. Again, I tell you, that's not the way to win friends and influence people in our day. You see, there's a real comfort to a remote theology. You remember Jesus when he went to Samaria and he met that woman at the well? And oh, wasn't she surprised when he, it turned out, knew so much about her life, so much about the immorality of her practice. And so as Jesus has put her, if you will, on the hot seat, and as she's beginning to feel very uncomfortable and squirming, you see, under the pressure of her conscience, convicting her because of the kind of woman she is, she does a very interesting thing. It's something which I have seen people do countless times in my own ministry. She tries to change the subject by appearing very interested in doctrine. Jesus has talked to her about her immoral lifestyle, and she says, well, you know, there is this theological question. You southern Jews, you think you're supposed to worship there in Jerusalem. But you see, us northern Jews, we think we're supposed to worship up here in Samaria. Now, which do you think of the, these two positions is the right one? Now, don't get me wrong. That was a legitimate theological question. It's one that should have been considered, answered, and the answer should have been followed. And she should have known the answer. But you see, what she's doing there is she's saying, when things get just a little too personal, let's start talking about dogma. And now when this prophet of God comes along and makes it very uncomfortable, she says, well, you should be able to answer theological questions. Let's talk about that. Previous subject is just a bit too uncomfortable. And the author of Hebrews has been going along very well in his, if you will, remote and objective theology, and we need that remote and objective theology. But then he turns, you see, a corner and he peers right at his readers and he says, but you see, I can't tell you anything else about this. And he gets very personal. 
This is the problem with you people is your doctrinal immaturity. The problem with you people is your inability to understand the biblical teaching that I wish to give you. He says the problem with you is that there is an arrested growth that is evident in your lives. And the symptoms of that arrested growth are your spiritual immaturity, your dullness of comprehension, and your lack of ethical discernment. Are those symptoms evident in your church tonight? Are those symptoms evident in the person sitting next to you? Well, that would be a convenient way to leave the question, wouldn't it? Perhaps that's the way you'd like to answer the question. Because it's very easy for us to see those symptoms in others and in our church. But it hurts to see those symptoms in us. The symptoms of spiritual immaturity, dullness of comprehension, and lack of ethical discernment. In verse 11, the author says, Of whom, this Melchizedek, we have many things to say, but hard to be uttered. These things are hard to say. Now, the author does not mean here that these things are hard to say, to utter, because of the nature of the subject. He doesn't mean this is such a complicated issue. Well, it's just so tough to put it into words. No, that's not what he's getting at. Nor does he mean that these things are very hard to utter because, you see, the Bible hasn't given us very much revelation on these matters. The extent of our revelation is limited, and therefore, what more can I say than I've already said? He doesn't mean that at all, for he says that he has much to say, but these things are hard to be uttered. And the author is certainly not saying that they can't be uttered very easily because of his own ignorance or unskillfulness of speech. No, he quite bluntly says these things are hard to be uttered because of your undisciplined character and your mediocre goals, of whom we have many things to say, but hard to be uttered, seeing ye are dull of hearing. And verse 12 at the beginning says, For you see... When for the time ye ought to be teachers, ye have need that one teach you again, which be the first principles of the oracles of God. If you're marking your Bible tonight, you must take note of the fact that his hearers have become such. They have become such as have need of milk and not of strong meat. This wasn't always the way things were in this particular church or among these particular Christians. Not originally were they, you see, such that needed milk and not strong meat, but they have now become this. You see, if he was talking to those who were newly converted, there would be no difficulty at all. Of course they are babes in understanding. Of course they are infants who need milk and then gradual strengthening and progressive growth and maturation. He says, you have become childlike. You have become sluggish and deaf. You have become this way by default. Ezekiel, the 12th chapter, verse 2, I would have you note that blindness and deafness to the word of God is something that results from a lack of inertia. Ezekiel, the 12th chapter, the prophet indicting Israel, God's chosen people, Israel resting on her laurels, Israel priding herself to be the child and the children of Abraham. Ezekiel says, Son of man, 
Thou dwellest, God says to Ezekiel, Son of man, thou dwellest in the midst of a rebellious house, which have eyes to see and see not. They have ears to hear and hear not. For they are a rebellious house. The author of Hebrews says that those to whom he writes are like the rebellious house of Israel. Given eyes, which are blind. Given ears, which have now become deaf because they have no inertia. Remember very well the testimony of one Farmer Jones, who every week in the testimony meeting was prone to rise and say, well now, I'm not making much progress in my Christian life, but at least I'm established. And the people who knew Farmer Jones knew very well that he was not making much progress in his Christian life for the manner of his speech and for the form of his behavior and for the immaturity of his comprehension. And yet week after week, this ungrowing, unsanctified man would continue to rise saying, I admit I'm not making much progress in my Christian life, but at least I am established. And another week would go by, and the same man would rise to say, I realize I'm not making much progress in my Christian life, but at least I am established. And then there was that morning where another believer in the congregation was heading for town, only on the side of the road to come across Farmer Jones with his cart uh, stuck in the mud up to the hubs. And that believer, in a rebuking, in a very necessary way, said to him, Well, Farmer Jones, I see you're not making much progress, but at least you're established. And as we chuckle at Farmer Jones, let's have the good graces to chuckle at ourselves. The author says, They have need to be taught again. You see, in a very real sense, my illustration is not appropriate. Because, you see, the illustration assumes that Farmer Jones was stuck in the mud down to the hubs, and that's where it stayed, established but no progress. But the author of Hebrews says it's not a matter of no progress. It's a matter of being in quicksand, not stuck and going no further, but, you see, falling back and downward and downward we go. You need to be taught again, the author says. You see, when there is no progress in your Christian development, when there is no progress in your Christian comprehension, when there is no growth in your Christian life, you do not stay on a plateau. Oh, how we wish that were true, because then we needn't feel so bad about our moments of and our periods of, indeed, for some of us, our eras of complete lack of progress. The Bible says you're going to retrogress. When you're not moving on, then you will not retain that which you've already grasped. When you're not moving on, you're going to be moving back. And the author says that they have become such that need to be taught again the first principles. These first principles are the elementary ABCs of understanding, the basic items of a Christian comprehension. Obviously, they can't press on to higher accomplishments as long as they haven't retained the ABCs. A chemist will not make very much progress if he keeps forgetting the periodic table. If you don't know the ABCs, you can't do much more. 
And yet the author says they should by now be teachers. They should have advanced enough to help others. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 9 through 12. There Paul tells us of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the life of the believer. 1 Corinthians 2 at verse 9, But as it is written, I have not seen nor ear heard, neither have entered into the heart of man the things which God hath prepared for them that love him. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. For the Spirit searcheth all things, yea, the deep things of God. In verse 12, Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit which is of God, that we might know the things that are freely given to us of God. The Spirit has been given to us that we might come to comprehend freely those matters of revelation, those deep things of God. And yet the sad testimony of the Hebrews is that they were not making much progress, but rather stuck in the quicksand. They should have been advanced enough to help others, and they couldn't even help themselves. Verse 12 is saying they don't understand the most basic thing. And then in chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, we read what these basic things are. As the author goes on to give his exhortation, therefore leaving the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on to perfection, let us press on to maturity, not laying again the foundation, and then he lists six doctrines which are just very elementary foundational doctrines. The doctrine of repentance from dead works and the doctrine of faith toward God, the doctrine of baptisms or the laying on of hands, the doctrine of the resurrection of the dead and the doctrine of eternal judgment. It's just taken for granted that Christians will understand such simple matters as these. The appalling thing today is, I'm not even sure that we would make that the list of elementary things. In that day, those were the elementary things. In our day, we do well to have candidates for the ministry give a good account of such doctrines and presbytery exams. They don't understand the most basic things, these Hebrews, as the author says, they are inexperienced. They are inexperienced in the word of righteousness. For everyone that useth milk is unskillful in the word of righteousness, for he is a child, he is an infant, he is a babe. They are untrained. They are inexperienced. They have no strength. They have no endurance. They have no general ability, just like an athlete who wants to play football would have no strength, endurance, or ability if he wasn't out there training and disciplining himself day by day. You can be very sure that Charles White would be nothing of a fullback at USC if he just sat around studying diagrams and then on the day of the game hoped that his body would perform. No, it takes discipline and training, exercising, you see, that which you've been given so that it will improve. But those who are being rebuked in this passage are unskillful in the word. Let's stop for a minute and ask ourselves, how serious a matter is this, this handling of God's word? I mean, what are we talking about as Christians now? I mean, just at what point in your evaluation of Christian truth would you place this evening's sermon? Okay? If I came and preached to you about the existence of God, the deity of Christ, 
the necessity of his shed blood for salvation, I dare say most of you'd say that's at the heart. You'd probably say, boy, without those things you haven't got anything. I want to know how serious do you think this handling of God's word is? How crucial is it? Well, let me tell you how crucial, not my sermon is, but the subject of it. Having and obeying God's word is the very criterion of discipleship to Jesus Christ. Look at John the 8th chapter. Gospel of John chapter 8, Jesus is confronting one of his persistent opponents, the Pharisees. And let's remember that the Pharisees were not in Jesus' day. They did not bear in Jesus' day the kind of reputation that they bear with us today. To say of somebody that he's a Pharisee today is to say something very low about him, to say something very critical of him, to be downright, if you will, nasty about him. In Jesus' day, for a man to be a Pharisee was just the opposite. It was to compliment him. He was a man interested in holiness and righteousness and dedication to the Word of God. That strikes us as strange, I guess, until we stop and reflect on the fact that those who are perhaps our religious leaders today might be in the same general boat. But Jesus now is debating his Pharisaical opponents, those who pride themselves in their proper titles, those who pride themselves in their heritage, in their orthodoxy. And Jesus says in John the 8th chapter at verse 31, then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, if you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. Verse 47, he that is of God heareth God's words, ye therefore hear them not, saying to those who don't believe on him, because ye are not of God. At the most basic elementary level, having and obeying God's word is a criterion of discipleship. One cannot be a disciple of Christ apart from the word of God. In Matthew, the seventh chapter, Jesus tells the story which just about any child who grows up in Sunday school can tell you about when he tells about the wise man who built his house upon the rock and the foolish man who built it upon the sand. And we are glad to have our children sing such a song and to learn the lesson of it. But have we learned the lesson of it? When Jesus finishes this, if you will, little story with moral application, he says that his words are the rock. Now what does that mean to you tonight if it turns out that whole portions of your life and long eras of your experience are not founded upon the word of God. It means you are in the eyes of our Savior Jesus Christ a fool. And John indicates that the Pharisees of Jesus' day couldn't handle this kind of teaching, and so they said to him, We have Abraham to our father. Jesus, you're the fool. Don't you understand? We have the proper pedigree. We come from the right source. Abraham is our father. We know our doctrine, Jesus. Don't you call us fools? Don't you say we're opposed to God? And so Jesus, if you will, up the ante a bit in this argument when he said, I'll tell you whose father you have, Satan. And Satan doesn't stand in the truth, and neither do you. Don't ever think that this kind of subject matter that I'm bringing to you tonight is periphery. You know, how many times have you heard Christians say, the important thing is that Jesus is my Savior. All these debates about the Bible, well, I guess they're necessary. Somebody can go fight those battles. Somebody can be interested in the Bible out there. But what I care about is Jesus. Jesus, meek and mild. Jesus, my Savior, and his spirit in my heart. 
It's not tonight that I wish for you to have more interest in the written scriptures than in Jesus. My point is that you know no Jesus apart from the written scriptures. Moreover, not only is having and obeying God's word a very criterion of discipleship, hearing that word is not nearly enough. Let's turn to James, the first chapter, to find what the wisdom of the New Testament says to us. James, the first chapter, and I'll start reading at verse 22. There James says, Be ye doers of the word, and not hearers only. And our tendency is to say, well, if we hear it and believe it, but don't do it, then we've gone at least halfway. We're on the road, aren't we? And James says, if you are hearers but not doers, you are deceiving yourself. For if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto a man beholding his natural face in a mirror or glass, for he beholds himself and goes his way and straightway forgets what manner of man he is. But whoso looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues therein, he being not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the word, this man shall be blessed in his deed. Then chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, go on to expound on this. But what profit, my brothers, doth a man, what profit is there, my brothers, if a man say he has faith and has not works, can this kind of faith save him? James makes it very clear that obedience to the word is absolutely crucial. You must have the word, and you must believe the word, and you must obey the word. And what does obeying the word mean? You know, if you look at the Bible, you're going to find that there are many kinds of literature there. You're going to find statements of fact. You're going to find promises of God. You're going to find threats from God. You're going to find questions addressed to individuals. You're going to find songs and poetry and wisdom sayings and parables and letters and all the rest. Now, do all those things function in your life to make you a better Christian? There are many kinds of utterances in the scripture, and every one of them is authoritative. The Westminster Confession of Faith at chapter 14, section 2, says that by saving faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is contained. The Westminster Confession of Faith at chapter 14, section 2, says that by saving faith, a Christian believes to be true whatsoever is contained in the word of God, and that for the authority of God speaking therein, and he reacts differently to the various things found, yielding obedience to the commands, and trembling at the threats, and embracing the hope and promises that are found there. You see, there are all these different kinds of literature in the Bible, and every one of them is calculated to do something in our lives to make us more mature in our Christian experience. And this Word of God that has so many different kinds of literature, this Word of God that is the absolute standard and criterion of Christian discipleship, is supposed to have an all-pervasive influence in our lives. For you see, this Word of God covers every area of life. Deuteronomy 6, verses 4 to 9. There Moses says that this law is to be taught to your children, whether they are rising or whether they're going down to sleep or whether they're leaving the house or coming in, whether they're walking in the road, whatever you're doing. And this word of God teaches us to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind so that God leaves nothing you see outside of the domain of the authority of his word. It covers all areas of life. 
and he will allow no competition to this word. Paul says, let God be true, though all men are liars. God will not allow any challenge, he will not allow any competition to his word. This word, you see, is to have an all-pervasive influence, an influence that is beyond challenge for us. And then finally, the scripture tells us that our response to the scriptures is in fact our response to God himself. The Bible, you see, is, um, is in very serious, in a very serious way, not at all like a textbook. All right, I write a textbook, let's say, on uh, some theological subject or some astronomical subject or some mathematical subject or some historical subject. Now, if somebody challenges what I have said in my book, that person does not thereby challenge me. He rejects on the basis of what su was supposed to be the standard of my authority. He, he rejects, if you will, on the basis of historical fact, on the basis of astronomical fact, what has been said. But that does not need to be an insult to me. He says, you wish to honor the truth as we find it in history, and as a matter of fact, you haven't portrayed history correctly. Now, I may get my feelings hurt, okay? But there's no challenge to me. There's no insult to me if he tries to use the facts to correct what I've written. But you see, that's just totally impossible with the Word of God. In John 12, verse 48, notice what Jesus says about those who don't wish to submit to his Word. John, the 12th chapter. And there in John 12 at verse 48, Jesus says, He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my words hath one that judgeth him. The word I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. And those you see who are not responsive to the word, those you see who in practice or in word reject the authority of God's word, have one that will judge them. And the one that will judge them is the word itself that they have spurned. You can't encounter the Bible without encountering God, and that for better or for worse. The word of God is always exposing our heart to God's presence, and therefore it's always exposing our heart either to the blessing or the cursing of God. And that's why I have said and continue to say over and over to those who are entering seminary that that can be indeed a very treacherous path to tread. Because, you see, seminary life is supposed to expose people to the Word of God intensely and pervasively over and over and over again. But, you see, if they should take an indifferent or careless attitude to the Word of God, because, after all, they're getting used to this sort of thing, it's just business as usual for them now, they are really opening up their heart to the cursing and hardening effects of the Bible. The Bible will always have its effect. God says that it never returns to him void. It always accomplishes something. And I'm asking you tonight, what is the Bible accomplishing in your life? Is it hardening you? Is it teaching you to be indifferent? Is it, in fact, pressing you backward, you see, because of the retrogression of your immaturity? Or is the Bible accomplishing the good work, by God's grace, of leading you further and further into the truth so that you understand God and know how to perform in this world? And uh, I think it's probably true to say that the pagans treat their idols much better than most of us Christians treat the Bible. Well, in Hebrews, the fifth chapter, we've been looking at verse 12, for when, by reason of time, you should be teachers, 
you in fact have need that someone come and teach you again what are the first principles of the oracles of God. You are like those who need milk and can't tolerate strong meat. Can't tolerate strong meat. Our lives can be so engrossed with physical food that weight control becomes a problem for us. And yet I've never, ever heard of a spiritually overweight believer. You know, there's no such thing as being too well nourished in the high calorie of God's word. Impossible to become overweight with the Bible. In 1 Corinthians 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul himself uses this kind of image that the author of Hebrews is using. And there we read, And I, brothers, could not speak unto you as unto spiritual, but as unto carnal, even as unto babes in Christ, infants. I have fed you with milk and not with meat, for heretofore ye were not able to bear it, neither yet now are ye able. It's a common metaphor, then, in the Christian church. It's a common condition in the Christian church that believers need milk rather than meat. They are infants, spiritual infants, and that in this situation is a term of derision. It's not talking about a person who, because he's recently been converted, you see, is crying out as a child for the sincere milk of the word, as Peter speaks of it, but this is a person who's been a believer for a long enough time that he ought or she ought to be a teacher, but cannot. This person can't tolerate anything but milk, the most elementary instruction, the baby food, rather than, you see, the porterhouse of God's word. I am appalled at the number of times I hear people say, after noting the simplicity of faith of a very mature Christian, the fact that this Christian knows only the most elementary things and concentrates only on the most elementary things, that that's really okay, you see, because the only thing that really matters is love for the simple gospel. I love the simple gospel. Please don't tonight accuse me of being against the simple gospel. What I'm against is leaving things at the level of simplicity. Here's this person who says, well, that's really all right because it's the simple gospel we're supposed to love. And I tell you, that involves a, a perverted conception of Christianity. It involves the perverted conception that what Christianity is all about is man-centered safety and ease. As long as you know the simple gospel and you're going to escape eternal torment, then that is all that matters. That's a perverted conception of Christianity, and secondly, it's as presumptuous as it can be. In the very name of piety, in the very show, you see, of submission to God and being a sweet Christian person, it is the most presumptuous, nay, almost blasphemous attitude to say that we are wiser than God, who said that all Scripture is inspired of God and all Scripture is necessary for the perfecting of God's people. And yet we can say, but that's okay. It's just the love for the simple gospel. Every bit of the Bible is necessary for our equipping, and every bit of the Bible better be studied if we're going to be equipped. And to the degree we ignore some element of Scripture, to the degree that we ignore advancing in our Christian comprehension, to that very degree we cannot be men of God, perfectly equipped for every word God requires of his people. How often have we had to endure the milked-down sermons and the milked-down counsel and the milk-down lessons and the milk-down apologetical defenses in our day. And what are the results of these milk-down sermons, lessons, and all the rest? The result is that the whole world, you see, is now seen in nothing more but a vague Christian context. 
we don't see the world as God wants us to see it. We see, you see, the world in itself, and then the gospel is added to it. The result is that we're unable to make difficult moral decisions, and the relevance of the gospel becomes obscured. And the result is that when all is said and done, we get tossed back and forth, back and forth by every wind of doctrine. And our only defense is to hide within the walls of our own church and say, we don't listen to anybody else, and we bow to our pastor as though he were a Roman Catholic priest. The results of this we can do with the milk-down sermons and the simple gospel you see is to give the whole world the wrong context in our vision. It's to be unable to live the lives God wants us to live, and it's to be tossed by every wind of doctrine that comes around. And yet Ephesians, the fourth chapter, tells us that Christ has given as a gift to his church pastors and teachers, not that they would be priests who would learn for us, not that they would be priests growing for us, not that they would be priests doing all of our religious work for us, but he gave pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints so that we might grow into the knowledge of Christ and no longer be children tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. The problem with the church today, you see, is that we have far too low a standard with respect to the Word of God, far too low a standard of what God requires of us. And so the author of Hebrews in chapter 6 says, Therefore, leaving behind the principles of the doctrine of Christ, by which he means leaving as a foundation, let us press on, let us grow, let us progress unto perfection, unto maturity. Press on. Don't repeat the fundamentals. Press on. And please notice that the author of this book, and I hope that you will understand uh, that the author of this sermon are not attempting to be self-righteous because he says, let us press on. Let us press on. The example of the Apostle Paul comes to my mind here in Philippians 3, verse 12. Paul says, not as though I had already attained either were already mature or perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. The author of Hebrews says, yes, all of us in this joint effort of Christian growth, let us press on and press on. Peter in 2 Peter 3.18 commands that we grow in knowledge. Paul in 1 Timothy 4 verse 15 tells Timothy to wholly give himself over to the study of God's word so that the profit of that might inevitably show. Paul says to Timothy in his second letter, chapter 2, verse 15, that Timothy is to be diligent, to be approved by God for the way he handles the scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 14, 20, Paul tells to all those who name the name of Christ, do not be children in understanding, but rather be men. How often have we been stirred when we watch, you see, in the movies, the father saying to his son as he's about to go out to battle, or the father saying to the son as he's about to die in the hospital, or the father saying to his son as he faces some great task that he may not be able to accomplish, and he says, son, be a man. And you know, in our hearts, just kind of, we resonate to that, and we know what that is like, and you know, we can really be roused by it. And tonight I tell you, in the name of Jesus Christ, your Savior and Lord, be men, not children in understanding. And in verse 14 of Hebrews chapter 5, if you'll but be a man when it comes to the word of God, notice what, will be what you'll be characterized by. But strong meat belongs to them that are of full age, even those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good 
and evil. In the first place, if you'll grow in your comprehension of God's word, there's going to be a discerning moral sense developed in you so that you'll have the wisdom to use God's word in the most difficult, trying, ethical matters of your life. This sense, this moral sense, is something that has to be rigorously exercised. It's a skill that is acquired not by prayer only, not by asking your pastor only. It is a skill that is acquired through use, just like an athlete acquires a skill through habitual training. And it will result in your ability to know your moral duty and to comprehend your Christian doctrine. The menace of mediocrity in our churches today is quite evident. The spiritual ignorant of our country is shameful. Puritan children, by the time they were eight years old, had memorized the shorter catechism. The literature of our early American writers, even when they were unbelievers, is strewn with spiritual images rooted in the literature of Bible that was well known to every man. There was a common moral sense where all men knew their obligation. Even if they wanted to reject the Savior, they knew that their society depended upon this common moral sense built up from a pervasive knowledge and exposure to the Word of God. And over against that, we look at the spiritual ignorance that is just abounding and engulfing us today. And I see those who are seeking not expertise in the Word of God, but experience and an emotional feeling about the Spirit. And I see those who, when confronted with very difficult matters of life, very difficult matters of behavior, very difficult matters of thought and belief, give an unstudied, immature, gut-level, personal opinion response. Well, it seems to me, or, well, I feel, not, it seems that Scripture has taught. Our attention is so often confined in our Christian churches to elementary principles rather to an advanced doctrine. We should see that it's highly reproachful to religion and it's dangerous to the Church of Christ to trust, to see the service of the Word of God to weak and ignorant men. And yet so often we are those weak and ignorant men because we have no discipline. We are not self-starters and we don't stay on the track of studying God's Word. And the quality of our Sunday school literature and our Bible studies and our preaching and our exams is terrible. I visited just a few weeks ago the thesis editor at the University of Southern California. I had started up a ministry of evangelism to her while I was working on my doctoral dissertation. She was interested in the subject. And uh, while she's slow of progress toward confessing her sins, she has at least made the effort to visit some churches. And to my sad uh, experience and dismay, in talking to her, she says she's gone to these churches and unfortunately she finds as a literature major she knows more about the Bible than the local pastor. I tell you, there's a menace to many mediocrity. And so there's very little Bible study in our lives. We prefer devotional reading. And our libraries, our Christian libraries, are not really overused, and our Christian books are not really being sold at a rate that is commensurable with what I think is necessary. And so often I think we, if we were to be honest, would have to sing not onward Christian soldiers, but we'd have to reflect on our experience and sing backward Christian soldiers 
in contrast to the Middle Ages, which we call the Dark Ages, the Middle Ages which developed Christian universities, the Middle Ages which developed the printing press, in contrast to the Middle Ages that developed an education that for centuries afterwards would have its influence, we sing backward Christian soldiers. There's just no way that we're going to reform our world and our churches by ill-equipped believers. And thus, as I've already told you, we leave our priestly matters of religion to our minister. We don't disciple people because what do we know what to say? And we don't show hospitality to others because what counsel can we offer? And we don't defend the faith because, after all, we haven't got PhDs in philosophy. And instead of striving for excellence in our service, we are content with our simple routines, our plotting church programs. And as Dr. Clowning has recently written, we are content so often with what is in fact an hour of formal boredom as something of a religious duty rather than a delight of the Christian man. And I say to you tonight that we are lurking in the shades of mediocrity, and to that degree we do not need the doctrine of sola scriptura because it's utterly irrelevant. In verse 3 of chapter 6 of Hebrews, the author concludes by saying, having exhorted them to leave behind the fundamentals and to build further and to grow into maturity, he says, and this we will do if God permit. I mustn't end tonight's sermon without reminding you that for all of this exhortation, for all of this afflicting of your souls, you must remember that only by God's grace will you be able to do it. And there's a paradox there. You say, well, if it's only by God's grace, what can I do? You can pray. You can repent. And you can say, God, by your grace, strengthen me to improve my effort. You do not want to be part of the menace of church mediocrity today. One of the real horrors of drug addiction, perhaps the most frightening thing about drug addiction, as a matter of fact, is that those who become dependent upon heroin or what have you, can initially get a jolt from just a little bit of the drug and to achieve the same effect or to receive an even better effect. That little bit is not enough. After a while, they must have more and then more and then more and then more and then more. That's the horror of drug addiction. And yet it's the beauty of addiction to God's word. We always have to have more. Let's pray. Father, stir us out of our slumbers. Awaken us so that we might see our stupor. Challenge us that we might not be satisfied. Strengthen us that we might grow. All to the glory of our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.